Chapter 18, verse 1. Sometime later, in the third year of the famine, Yahweh told Elijah, Go and make an appearance before Ahab, so I may send my rain on the surface of the ground. So Elijah went to make an appearance before Ahab. Once again, command obey. Command obey without hesitation. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. So Ahab summoned Obadiah, who supervised the palace. Now Obadiah was very loyal follower of Yahweh. Obadiah, this is not the Obadiah who wrote the book of Obadiah. Completely different century. Or dec- yeah, century. Not lining up. All, this is all we know about Obadiah. Obadiah literally shows up for like seven or eight, ten verses. That's it. He comes in the narrative as a functionary, and then he walks off the stage. And we never see him again. But we do know this right now, is he is an advisor and the right-hand man to Ahab. But he also is incredibly committed to Yahweh. In this sense, he's like a Daniel. He's serving an incredibly pagan, corrupt king. But at the same time, he's maintaining his loyalty to Yahweh. And not only that, we've been told that they're looking for rain. Sorry, they're looking for water sources. Ahab has sent Obadiah out to try to find water for animals and plants in his nation. And this is a huge threat to the king's power. Because Walter Brueggemann says this, In the ancient world, royal responsibility for rain is not unlike contemporary presidential responsibility for the economy. The measure of an effective king is rain that produces crops. And this simple assertion, the capacity to administer rain and therefore life is taken from the king. The king has made a political irrelevance, void of any critical function for the society. And so like the president failing to create a stable economy, this king has failed to provide rain and crops for his people. And this way, not only has God brought a judgment on the king, but he is literally humiliating and robbing the king of his relevance as a power authority in the nation. And everybody would be saying, you promised us hope and change. I'm not voting for you. The people would be totally against him on this. And he is desperate. He is looking around everywhere. Meanwhile, while he's actually, even though he's an evil king, he is somewhat relevant to the people because he's trying to find a source of life for the people. Jezebel has completely occupied herself with exterminating all the prophets of Yahweh, trying to get to Elijah to kill him. So in this contrast, Ahab is evil and corrupt, but at least he's still trying to provide for the people. Jezebel doesn't care. These aren't her people. She is trying to exterminate the prophets of God, and she is successfully exterminating many of them. That is what she's committed to. This is like Hitler, who eventually at the end of his power began to give up actually taking care of the people economically and became obsessed with the extermination of the Jews. And the people no longer mattered to him anymore, only his ideology of getting rid of a certain group of people. And that's what Jezebel has become. And this is what's so interesting. Jezebel is in the land of God, not caring about the people of Israel, only interested in exterminating the people of God. Meanwhile, Yahweh and his prophet is in the land of Jezebel, taking care of her people and caring about them. And Yahweh just keeps coming out on top on this. 
He keeps showing that he is way different. This is why I did not want you to have kings like this. Because these kings, when they become powerful, they don't give you what you really want. They don't take care of you. They don't love you. They don't provide you. They don't dry the chaos away. And so what he's saying is, I dry the chaos away. And I provide for you and I take care of you. And God constantly is demonstrating his love and his authority over and over and over for people. So Obadiah is hiding prophets. And he's got two caves, and he's hiding 50 prophets in each one. So 100 prophets total. And he is taking water and bread to them. Now, this is incredibly res- risky. I mean, he doesn't, nobody knows he's a, a mole or a traitor, whatever, however you want to view it from whatever per- perspective. So he's working both sides. Now, the best place to be when the king is trying to exterminate prophets is right by his side. Because you can advise him, no, 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 let's go search for water over here. Or, oh my gosh, he's coming. Move, 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 move. But every single time he takes some bread and water, he's risking being followed. He's risking being caught. And so this would be the equivalent of Germans hiding Jews during World War II. There's a huge risk here. But what better place than to be by Obadiah's side? Because not only can he help try to find water for people in Israel, but he can also mislead or direct people away from the prophets he's hiding. And so this is an incredible risk to his own life, and yet he's demonstrating an incredible act of love. And once again, the servant of Baal is only thinking about death and herself. But the servants of Yahweh are sacrificing their own lives for the goods of other people. And so even though Yahweh has left Israel with one prophet to take care of the foreigners, he still has righteous people in Israel to take care of his remnant. Because the prophets will make it very clear that though I'm abandoning Israel into captivity and exile, I am not abandoning the remnant. The remnant are the faithful leftovers, the one that actually stays true. And that's the other thing you must remember is every time God abandons Israel, he's only abandoning Israel as the nation. He's not abandoning Israel as the faithful covenant people, the ones that are actually still staying true to God. And so he's hiding them. So, um, so he's looking. So verse 7, As Obadiah was traveling along, Elijah met him, and when he recognized him, he fell face down on the ground and said, Is that really you, my master? Elijah, he replied, Yes, go and say to your master, Elijah's back. Obadiah said, What sin have I committed that you've ready to hand your servant over to Ahab for execution? As certainly as Yahweh your God lives, my master has sent to every nation and kingdom in an effort to find you. And when they say he's not here, he makes them swear an oath that they will not, that they could not find you. Now you say, go and say to your master, Elijah is back. But when I leave you, Yahweh's spirit will carry you away so I can't find you. So if I go to Ahab and I've seen you, he won't be able to find you and he will kill me. That would not be fair because your servant has been loyal follower of Yahweh from youth. Certainly my master is aware of what I did when Jezebel was killing Yahweh's prophets. I hid 100 of Yahweh's prophets in two caves and two groups of 50, and I brought them food and water. Now you say, go and say to your master, Elijah's back, but he will kill me. So this is what Obadiah is saying. Look, I'm obedient. I've been faithful. Look, God, (laughs) I'm risking my life to take care of prophets, that kind of stuff. I want to obey your prophet, God, Elijah. I really want to and all this kind of stuff. But 
If I go back to the king and say, oh, by the way, I'm actually a follower of Yahweh and I'm a servant of Elijah and I know where he is. And you don't show up because the last time you spoke, you disappeared for three years. How do I know that's not going to happen to me now and I'll die? And not only do I not want to be die, I want to be die. I don't want to die. I don't think that's a right reward for my faithfulness. And who will take care of these prophets if I'm dead? And Elijah says to him, But as certainly as Yahweh rules over all lives whom I serve, I will make an appearance before him today. And I will honor my word. When Obadiah went and informed Ahab, the king went to meet Elijah. That's incredible. All the prophet had to say is, Yahweh will fulfill his promise. I will be there. And Obadiah goes. He walks right into the presence of Ahab. And he says, Elijah's coming. That's incredible faith. And that's the end of Obadiah. Why he says, as the Lord your God lives? I think in that case, with the widow, it's clear because she's angry, she's bitter, she's in a foreign land, that kind of stuff. In this case, it's clear that Obadiah is faithful to Yahweh because the narrator has said it and he's demonstrated it. I think in this case, it's more of the God that you represent. I think in this case, it's, it's acknowledging that you are the prophet. You are the prophet. And you speak as God's voice where I do not. And this way, you are closer to God than I am. This context is so important. Remember, context is important even on everything we say and do. That's what makes this 400-level literature class. So he tells him this. Ahab says, when Ahab saw Elijah, verse 17, is it really you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah replied, I have not brought disaster on Israel, but you and your father's dynasty by abandoning Yahweh's commandments and following the Baals. So he says, this is your fault, you traitor of Israel. You've abandoned your own people and you've brought devastation and famine and no rain on the land. And like, you're, you're, you're the traitor. You're the, the non-patriotic person. You're the enemy. And Elijah throws it right back on him and says, it's not me, it's your father and your dynasty. If you hadn't been so evil, this wouldn't have happened. So Elijah doesn't take lip from anybody. He just gives it right back to them. So he says this, Now send out messengers and assemble all of Israel before me at Mount Carmel as well as the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, whom Jezebel supports. Ahab sent messengers to all of Israelites and had the prophets assemble at Mount Carmel. Elijah approached all the people and said, How long are you going to be paralyzed or waver or limp between two gods? Is Yahweh the true God? Then follow him. But if Baal is, follow him. But the people were silent. Elijah says, okay, you need to meet me up at Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, Mount Carmel is right there. That's the peak. It's a mountain range that starts at Jezreel right here, and then begins to move northwest as it rises higher and higher and higher and juts out into the Mediterranean Sea. Other than the coastal plains where Philistia is, this is a mountaintop that's incredibly lush with grass and vegetation and everything. It is literally the highest peak in Israel and is topped with the most luscious vegetation of all. 
and it became a huge symbol of life and fertility and stuff. And so this was considered a blessing of God, and is often referred to as where God will bring down his rains and bless God, and then the mountain range drains into this region here. There's a Mount Carmel range that comes down here. There's another mountain range that comes up here where it's called the Mountain of Megiddo. And then there's another mountain range kind of up here around the top. So it basically forms this bowl. And this is called the Jezreel Valley. And this bowl right here is the Jezreel Valley. It's completely surrounded by mountains, except for a teeny little keyhole up here and a teeny little keyhole down here to go through this little valley. Go into the valley and then out of the valley. And it's not a valley where like you have two mountains coming down like the letter W into a stream, but more like a big open plain valley. Like think of a giant soccer field or a football field, but way bigger than that. But that kind of a valley. And when it rains, this territory is very fertile soil because the rain is coming down the mountains on all four sides. And so all comes in and this becomes a swampy like territory but not in a stagnant death alligator kind of swampy territory, but think more like rice paddy fields kind of water. The water staining the fields and creating lush vegetation. And so, but right now there's been no rain for three years, so think of like cracked, hard, lifeless soil. And that's what we're here now. So this incredibly lush valley that has rushing waters normally coming down to do, the ground is dry and hard. And this Mount Carmel top is incredibly fertile, but is no longer. It's dried and dead. And so the two greatest sources of vegetation are dead now. And what's interesting is Mount Carmel is also the border between Phoenicia and Israel. And because it's the border between Phoenicia and Israel, it's also where they built some of the biggest altars to Baal because it was the peak of the fertility of Baal. It was closer to Baal, and it was the most lush, cosmic mountain, so to speak, and that's for Baal. So now we have Elijah who's picked a home court again. Technically, this belongs to God's people, but it has been overtaken by Baal. And there's a huge Baal center of worship on top of this mountain range, but now it's completely dead and lifeless. And the contest is going to be who's God right on the border, so nobody has an advantage, because Mount Carmel technically is in Israel, but it belongs to Baal all through the, tent, the altar. But it's also right there at Phoenicia, and it has a Baal altar. And so this is like, we're going to have a contest of who can bring rain and make the fertility of Carmel revive. And this is a very strategic geographical location. And everybody would understand it. Everybody would understand it. So he says, how much longer will you limp between two gods? Basically, this word limping or wavering or teetering, depending on your translation, has the idea of somebody being on crutches and hopping on one leg. And they're leaning on one God, and they're leaning on another God, but because they're not fully committed to either God, they're really just kind of limping and hopping around and not really functioning well. And the idea is throw your crutches away and pick a God. In my estimation, as Elijah, you're going to pick the one God and you will die. And you will pick the other God, Yahweh, and you will live. And that's what he's going to say now. You're Right now you're trying to lean on two gods, and you're not walking good either way. I'm going to show you which God is really the God of life. So that when you throw your crutches away, you'll be able to pick the right God and walk with 
life. And when he asked them that, how long will you waver or limp between these two gods? They were silent. Because they're trying to play both sides of the field. They want to serve Yahweh and they want to serve Baal because I don't want to commit to something. Because what if I choose wrong? But if I serve both, then they'll both bless me. And I'm guaranteed. This is like a mutual fund. They're diversifying their investments. So if one company fails, they'll have backups. The problem is, Baal is okay with that, yet Yahweh is not. So Ahab sent messengers to all of Israel. This would be like the Rose Bowl or something, the Super Bowl. Like all of Israel is like, oh my gosh, I got tickets. And they're going out there because they know something's happening. If you've got, um, if you've got 400 prophets of Baal and 450, sorry, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, and you've got Yahweh's prophet who stopped the rain for three days, this is, or three years, this is something you need to see. And also notice that Elijah's stacking it against him. 850 prophets. Now they gather them all up there, and he says this, Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet that Yahweh has left. But there are 450 prophets of Baal. Now, is that true? Yeah, there's at least 100 being hid by Obadiah, and he knows that because Obadiah just told him. Now, emotionally speaking, one can sympathize with Elijah because he might feel like he's the only one left because oftentimes how you might feel like you're the only one left who's faithful in America. And that's the whole point of gathering together as believers. Well, that's the whole point. It's one of the major points. So what he's basically saying is, I feel like I'm the only one left. I, and all, and all, he's been by himself for three years, too. So you can't blame him emotionally, but he's not speaking the truth. You need to remember what he just said here, because that's going to keep coming up again and again and again. Let them bring us two bowls. Let them choose one of the bowls for themselves and cut it into pieces and place it on the wood. But they must not eat, let it set on fire. I will do the same to the other bowl and place it on the wood, but I will not set it on fire. Then you will invoke the name of your God, and I will invoke the name of my Yahweh. And the God who responds with fire will demonstrate that he is the true God. All the people responded, this will be fair tests. So notice how Elijah is saying, you can pick the animal too for me. Let's say I'm going to have a car race. Let's race cars against each other, right? Not only are we going to race cars, but I'll let you pick the race car for me as well. And you know that somebody's going to pick, they're going to pick, they're like, I'm going to get a Viper or a Lamborghini for myself, and I'm going to pick a Citation or a Chevette for you. Okay? This is what they're basically saying. He said, you know in the ancient world, the gods, even Yahweh, require animals without blemish. You know they're going to find the most nappy, diseased, pathetic, emaciated animal they can find for Elijah. There's no way that Yahweh would be pleased with this sacrifice. He's not going to respond. So he's outnumbered because in the ancient world, they believed that the more people who worshipped the gods, the more powerful they became. So if you have 850 people worshipping and giving their devotion with a great voluptuous cow, and they're going against one guy with a nappy, emaciated cow, there's no contest here. They're going to win. This is what they're thinking. This is so easy, you pathetic fool. And you're an old man. He says, do this. Now the competition is who can bring down fire first. Now this isn't fire. This is lightning. Remember, Baal is the god of the storm. And he's portrayed with a lightning bolt oftentimes. 
The reason it says fire in your Bible is because they didn't have a word for lightning yet at this time period in history. But it's fire because when lightning comes down and hits the ground, what does it do? It starts a fire. Why does it look different than our fire? Because it's the fire of the gods. Now remember, eventually, when the Greeks come along, they're going to take Baal and rename him Zeus, who is portrayed as the storm god with lightning. And then he'll be renamed Jupiter by the Romans. And then he'll be renamed Thor by the Vikings. It's the same god. So this is a lightning god. It's a contest of who can send down lightning first on the altar. So they begin to do this. Then we will know who will be God. Verse 25, Elijah told the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls for yourself and go first, for you are the majority. Invoke the name of your God, but you do not light the fire. So they took a bull that, as he suggested, and prepared it. And they invoked the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. Let's, let's just be generous, very liberal, and say morning is like 9 o'clock. Okay, it could be much earlier than that. All the way to noon. That means for at least three hours, they're chanting at the top of their lungs, trying to invoke the name of Baal, at the top of a mountain where everything echoes. This, this, can you imagine Elijah sitting there? Can you imagine sitting there for three hours? Watch people jump up and down and yell and scream and chant for the name of Baal. That'd be so exhausting just to watch that. But there was no sound, no answer. Twice the narrator says to emphasize his ineptness. So they jumped around on the altar and they had made. I always thought that was interesting. They jumped around on the altar you're praying for lightning to come down on the altar and you're jumping on the altar. <laughs> They're jumping on around the altar that they made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them and mock them. Yell louder. After all, he is a god. He may be deep in thought or perhaps he has stepped out for a moment or he has taken a trip. He begins to taunt them and he says, you should yell louder. Perhaps he cannot hear you. He says, perhaps he has turned aside. Now, this word turn aside is a euphemism for being on the toilet. So basically, he's saying maybe he's deep in thought and he can't hear you, or he's on the toilet, or maybe he's gone on vacation. Now, this is important to understand. Why would Elijah say he's on the toilet? Because the prophets have renamed Baal Zebul, the lord of the house. They have renamed him Baal Zebel, lord of the outhouse, lord of the dung. So he's saying... After all, he is the Lord of the outhouse. Maybe he's in the outhouse doing his business and he can't hear you. Shout louder. So this is incredibly sarcastic and taunting and mocking when they're like, oh, there's no sarcasm yet all. When you get to the prophets, there's lots of sarcasm. So they did. They yelled louder. In accordance with their prescribed rituals, they begin to slash themselves with knives and swords. Oftentimes, in the ancient world, if the sacrifice was not good enough to get the God's response, they would make themselves a human sacrifice. And they wouldn't literally kill themselves, but they began to cut themselves and slash themselves, and they would bleed out on the altar as another offering to the gods to get their attention. And then they began to chant louder, and then it said they went into an ecstatic frenzy. This word ecstatic frenzy is the idea of prophesying. Well, if Yahweh is not entering into them to prophesy, then something else is, a demonic power. And then they did this from morning, from noon to the evening sacrifice. 
Once again, let's get really liberal here and say evening is six o'clock. Six more hours. So Elijah's been watching this for like at least nine hours. And now they're jumping up and down, yelling and screaming. They're slashing themselves. Blood is everywhere. There's a demonic presence in them as they're prophesying and going in a static frenzy. And he is a prophet who is more in tune to the spiritual realm than anybody else is because he's a prophet. Can you imagine the spiritual darkness he is feeling on top of this mountain right now? The headache from the noise, the, 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 the chaos that he's watching, the length of time that he's watching it, and feeling the demonic energy as one who is gifted by God to be in connection to the spiritual realm more than most people are. This is exhausting. It would take its toll. This is why when it's all said and done, Elijah gets up on top of the mountain and puts his head between his legs. He's done. He's tired. Once again, it says there was no sound, no answer, no response. The narrator says it three times this time. 